Welcome to Season 4 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. I'm Karen Hay and this season we're delighted to bring you the voices of authors from the deep south of New Zealand, like today's author, Brian Turner. Brian Turner is well known for his reflections on the hills, sun, wind and rivers of his local landscape in central Otago. As a poet, essayist, biographer and editor, Brian has become one of New Zealand's most significant writers on landscape, the environment and sport. In 2003, he was New Zealand Poet Laureate. His most recent work, Landmarks, came out only last year. A collaboration with Owen Marshall and Graham Sidney, it's an example of their shared, deep connection to the landscapes of central Otago. Last year, Brian sat down with Naomi Arnold to record his oral history. Naomi asked him about the experiences which formed his passion for central Otago. When we were living by the, the Leith stream in Dunedin, um, I started fishing then because... Um, Thousands of mullet ran, ran up the channel from in the harbour into a... Um, you could catch trevally and other fish down off the wharves and stuff. And the um, lease stream was full of trout. And I learned to fish in it. And nowadays it's barren, of course, like so many other places. Um, I got so keen on it that um, I pestered the parents to take us fishing on Sunday. So we went all over Otago and I fell in love with rivers really. Rivers and streams are in much better condition then than they are today. And um, But we went to places that I felt were as close to paradise as anyone would have. The Upper Tyree, up through the gorges, we fished the Shag River, we um, went down to the Pomahaka because um, I used to read the column every week in the in the ADT and I said we've got to go there we'd go to the Matawa and they bought mum and dad bought an old caravan and um, so when he got his couple of weeks holiday in the year we would go to Fiordland or up um, Wanaka Hawea and so on and so on you know, I, I, by the time I was in my 20s, I just thought, well, why would one want to live anywhere but in southern New Zealand? And I've always regarded myself as a southern New Zealander rather than a North Island one, and that the real New Zealand for me starts south of Christchurch. What do you think of the distinctions between North Island, Northern South Island, and <laughs> South Island in your, as you see them? <laughs> well, it looks different, a bit different than all the rest of it. Um, I, don't, I don't think, well, it's more urban, urban than city. I did live in Wellington for quite a while. After a few years there, I said to Judy, my wife at the time, we just had a small kid and all the rest of it. And I started to go down Island Bay and further around the coast. And I look across at the snow-covered seaward Kaikoura. I did that for a few months, and one day I said to Judy, I thought, we're going home. And she says, I'm not. And I said, well, I am. And off I went, and I ended up down here with a small, even a small boy, but Judy came down after a while. But, but that was it. And over the years, I've found that Christchurch has swollen as well. Now, 
I mean, that opens up the subject of how many humans there are on the planet and the way we're behaving and how we're, to use the um, economics, uh, we're chewing up nature's capital too fast. We've got to do something about that. But if humans lived a year and half as long again as we do, I don't think we'd behave the way we do because we'd have to face the consequences. And you couldn't deny what we'd been doing and what the result was. What have you seen in your lifetime around uh, Central? <laughs> well, I've, I've seen that the rivers and streams, have, a lot of them have deteriorated greatly in terms of their in-stream values. Um, we dispense with a la large tracts of the magnificent tussock grasslands. We've um, ploughed up land too close to waterways without having them fenced off and so on and so on. So you've got nitrates and phosphates in the water. You've got fewer invertebrates, less invertebrate life and all that sort of stuff. And when you raise that with quite a lot of people, they take exception and say you're anti-farming. I said, no, I'm not at all. You know, it was Wendell Berry, I think it was, the American, or was it Aldo Leopold, said all good farmers are conservationists and all farmers ought to be. That's all. You know, it's not that. So it, but it has become a more sensitive sort of area, you know. And who said the, the assumptions are the mother of all stuff-ups? People make assumptions, and it gets on my nerves when they do that, that if you're involved in environmental issues and concerned about it, you're anti-farming. Well, it's just not true. No. Um, and I don't know how you can do something about that, frankly. Although, you know, if you, if you, if you get to know quite a few farmers, there's some farmers that I, I know extremely well and I'm very friendly with and I like. I don't detest any of them because, you know, it's an admirable occupation, profession, if you, and we need them. And the best of them, are, you know, deserve a hell of a good pat on the back. So when you were um, younger, mm. in your teens and perhaps um, late boyhood and teens, yeah. um, you're obviously very attracted to landscape, landscape values. Did you have a sense of environmentalism at that stage? Mm. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I I like seeing hatches on the river and so on and so on. And I could lie on my back when I was climbing mountains and others were filtering way, way back when I was working in a customs apartment in Christchurch, Bernie Hack and I would get on the rail car to Arthur's Pass on the upper Wymac on a Friday evening and uh, and the driver driving the rail car, he would stop us at the stop at the bridge wherever we wanted to stop and set us off. And we'd pound our way up the upper Wymac and all the others, or else we'd go and climb Mount Wallison and things. And I, I, I just thought, hmm, the the high country is a wonderful place. And you know, you get to the top of the mountain, you sit there and you look at the view and you think, wow. You've written a bit before about the artificial divide between sport and art yeah. and um, about how artists see sports people as brutes. But you're a bit of a renaissance man, you've got all these different interests or mm. you know, that you've achieved quite a lot in. Mm. Um, do you think that's unusual for New Zealanders? Um, 
Well, one hesitates to say that one is unusual, you know, because you sort of self-praise is no recommendation. You can't put yourself on a pedestal. Um, the hockey guys I played with were quite interesting, but we were a bit looked down upon because we weren't physically vigorous enough. You know, I mean, the, the New Zealand male, I used to think them they were they rather like grunting at each other and hitting people, and, and you're only going to have to be on the terrace in the crowd when there's some guys, boom, there's a oh, there with them, and I look around and I think, oh, for Christ's sake. That's still there big time. But the people now are about, they look to me to be about 25% bigger than they all were then. And it's just, I just just sit in and watch them and the bloody force that they go at each other with and hit and I think, Christ, that can't be good for the bodies. So I think there is probably, and I, I don't, I can't easily think of rugby players who have said anything or done anything that, would put them into the intellectual or artistic categories. There must be some, but I, I mean, I found Anton Oliver and Josh Cromfeld really interesting guys, and they had an interest in other than just the sport that they played. But you know, Josh was regarded as a bit of an oddball because of something like that within them. But they all, they all knew how good he was. Same with Anton. I mean, but I mean, if you'd asked Anton, if Anton hadn't met Graham Sydney and maybe me, his life wouldn't have been the same. You know, he's got a cottage down the road from Graham over there. I mean, he's a clever man. You know, I and I knew in hockey a lot of really clever guys. I mean, they all had better educations than I had most of them. So, so I don't know the answer. It would be a, it would be an interesting one to follow up. Actually, and because um, you, you probably write a, a short book about all that stuff. Well, you, Anton, and Graham were very instrumental in some local environmental campaigns. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit? Um, well, I think Anton was around when, and a lot of us fought the proposed giant wind farm on the on the old Dunson Road coming in. Um, We've been involved in just about every one, you know, dam building, more more dams and all that sort of thing, some irrigation schemes. Um, I'd have to look back for all of that. Do you recall at high school any books that were formative for you? Um, no. No, I just read anything and got my hands on it. But I did start reading poems quite early. And I read New Zealand writers mainly. Mm. I really like when I lived in Wellington working for AUP. On Friday night, I used to drink down in Lambden Quay or further up with uh, Harry Osman and Alistair Campbell and Jack Lazenby. And um, yeah, and I found them really interesting. And then one of my closest friends of all among writers, Vincent O'Sullivan, was there. So Vince and I have been mates for a long time. I mean, he lives in Dunedin now with me, Helen. And, um, yeah, and the bookshops were good too. You know, right down the bottom of the land of Key and looking around. And, and so I, 
One of the reasons why I liked being in New Zealand so much at that time was because I thought it was a bloody good place to be. And that we were on the improve, but the improve would be based upon what we learned from those world wars and so on. Um, you obviously, a family went into the back country mm. and you stayed with family in Queenstown and um, mm. exposed to the outdoors there, but when do you think your mountaineering um, escapades began? Well, when I was working for customs department in Christchurch at Bernie Hack, that's when I started climbing mountains. And when I came back south, came south here, I still periodically did that. And when Philip Temple and, and when Phil was living in Akaroa, we climbed mounts together. We, um, he and I climbed together and climbed Mount Cook um, and other peaks. Um, and I also I climbed a few mountains by myself. Um, I climbed a couple of mountains around the Homer Tunnel by myself, which is not something you should really do. You shouldn't really go and climb Torbett by yourself or up from the Hollyford and go up straight up and on to Crosscut and that. But I did that. I wasn't a particularly brave bugger. I, I'm not a great climber, but more than adequate. Um, and getting to the top of the mountain, and it's just another look at New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you start tramping trips and, someone off and on. I, 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 I vowed when I was quite young that I wasn't going to bugger about and um, I would live as best I could a full life because I, you know, I think probably saying earlier on, I, I just felt we were a nation put um, situated in a position on the globe which would be the envy of a great many people anywhere else. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I got so involved in environmental stuff. The go-getters. When I hear development, progress in development, I ask people to be specific about what it is that they're describing. That for me is destruction, depletion, degradation. You just call it development. You're actually disguising the reality to use a whole bunch of Ds. (laughs) <laughs> what was that good headline in the New Zealand Herald about your family? Well, something, why won't this family shut up? I don't know where that came from, that one. Which paper was it in? I think it was the Herald, mm. possibly. Yeah, and, and it went through your um, your family's um, tendency to speak your mind. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I think I said, I've, I've said to journalists, well, you guys, well, people have got, you've got a lot to say. I said, well, we actually don't. We, we If you ask us a question, we'll give you an answer. And Greg, when he first got it, he'd got it, you know, and he'd, three from them, so you're not going to blame us. I said, from my point of view, and Glenn, and that's you, you're as outspoken, I've got as much or more to say than we ever had at your age. (laughs) And I mean, Greg's an excellent writer, and um, and he designs golf courses, wins golf tournaments, and Glenn went, you know, and Glenn had that offensive becoming a professional cricketer. I mean, Lincoln Wright, too, he's just published a, a book of his out on the ebook, and it's excellent. But he and I did three books together. 
So what, what were you, um, what was your writing primarily concerned with? Well, when I wrote all sorts of columns, I mean, they had well, politics of the day, sport, recreation, uh, sometimes literature and books. I mean, you know, I wrote, I wrote quite a lot of books, a guidebook to fishing in Otago and all sorts of other things. Um, but the nature of the world around us and our part in it and its effect effects upon us were all always there but I did write a lot about sport because that's how I got commissioned the publishing rang me up and said you know well, we'd like you to do Colin Reeves' story well he was the icon in New Zealand Colin said to me or someone said to me well, that he was he'd asked Colin at one point um, what I was like and he said Ooh, he's, he's a bit different, said Colin. <laughs> and, but Colin <laughs> said, well, he said, but I don't know if you'd be able to I suppose the publishers, they must believe he knows what he's doing and how to do it. <laughs> so he was a very practical person, Meats. You're listening to the NZSA Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about the new online writer toolkit. From getting a new project started to negotiating a contract, the writer toolkit will take you through a year's worth of learning about craft and industry. Taught by experienced writing professionals, the Writer Toolkit will contain pre-recorded online content with writing exercises or assignments which you can work through at your own pace. Visit authors.org.nz to learn more. In 1979, Brian Turner won the Commonwealth Poetry Prize for his debut collection, Ladders of Rain. Over 40 years later, he told Naomi Arnold what he could remember feeling at the time about this extraordinary achievement. Yeah, that came as a big surprise, I think. I don't know who else has won that one, but um, I had no expectations or assumptions about any of those facts. I mean, I, I found that for me, you know, writing was chart, you know, charts the course of your life one way or another. Um, and you've got to be quite careful that it's, you cross a line on the, in that area sometimes. You, know, you start to write about other people or reflections of other people and so on and so on. Mm, it's dangerous, but I don't think I, I ever overdid that. You know. How do you mean dangerous? Well, you can hurt someone. And you don't want to do that. You, you certainly don't want to be snide or slanderous or anything like that, which I don't think I've ever been. Affection is there's a place for it all. You know, um, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of people that are, I like a great deal, and friendships have lasted a long time. And, um, and there are a hell of a lot of interesting people around and about. 
a lot of people are. And one thing I didn't want to do is I got older was go into my shell and not meeting different people and so on. You know, I'd sooner ask questions than the other. You know. A lot of times, but a short time. <laughs> yeah, I think the line from your, one of your poems, um, we are only hours away from rot. Yeah. <laughs> it's stuck yeah. in my head now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it could be. Mm. <laughs> so how do you write about your um, relationships with people, you know, um, often in your poetry you're going to love and, and a lot of difficult feelings for yourself um, while respecting them at the same time? Like, where's that balance? Mm. If you're uneasy about it, run it past one or two other people that you've got some faith in who will give you a, a response that you might, that you will take seriously or seriously consider. Um, and don't be sarcastic or snide towards them. Um, I mean, you can... Hmm. You... Well, you can try and be droll or witty, but then that's in dangerous territory because others may misinterpret it. The people who know you probably won't, but others might. So, hmm. But you just—I mean—you've got to go over what you write and say, don't you? What are you going to leave in? What are you going to go out? Have you got the right nuance and so on and so on? I mean, we just learn by doing. How did you find um, time to do your writing? What has been your, your writing practice over the years? Mm. Well, it was a condition I had to get on with it somehow or other while I was doing all the other things too. Um, I wrote stuff down and notebooks and then worked on them and because because I had deadlines for weekly or monthly or something like that I had to get had to do it anyway and when I got commissioned to write books I had to do them um, but if you're living with someone too it's you've got more time to write than you have I mean, one of the problems I've got with writing, apart from brain fade and <laughs> memory loss, is that for the most part, if there's anything to be done around the section, which there is, who cooks the meals I do, who shops I do, you know, etc., etc., who pays the bills, who gets the car maintained. You know, I've got a pot of paint in there I've had for a year and a half. I was going to repaint this little place. Haven't done it yet. <laughs> um, hmm. It's a good way to put off writing too, isn't it? In terms yeah, of jobs you can. There. And, you know, I've got the chainsaw there and I split wood and everything and I split wood for myself and, and I say to Gillian, well, you better have some of this and so on and so on. Um, hmm. So... So then I'm saying to myself, am I prevaricating or something a lot here? Or am I... Avoiding doing it? Have I not, not got my priorities right? A bit of all of that, probably true. So I'm quite interested 
in your publishing career because you were at OUP and you're also publishing your own work and then how did you move to um it was John McIndoe wasn't it yeah well John heard I was back in Dunedin and um, yeah he got in touch with me and asked me if I'd like to a job and I said when do I start <laughs> and so and he gave me free reign to publish if I said I'd like us to publish this they published it and this was the 1970s yeah early 80s was it? yeah that's right yeah and uh, when I look back on the books we did now no one's doing what we did it was a different time in publishing of course got harder and harder. What was special about what you were producing and the writers you were supporting? Well, there was just a range of writing. No other publisher was publishing. We did fiction, non-fiction, history, and we could do it, and John could do it, because, you know, there was a, well, not a big publishing firm, but it must have been you know, a dozen or 15 people worked there, and... Um, we could print and bind some stuff as well. And who were some of the authors that you remember working with? You mentioned Elizabeth Smither. Peter Hooper. Uh, Noel Hilliard. Uh, did we do something with Alice Campbell then? Sure, Vincent O'Sullivan. You know, uh, very prominent people in the time. And have you retained those relationships? Yeah, mostly. Through, yeah. Yeah, people are still alive, I still have some contact with them. Well, Vince and I was my, my mm. closest friends with each other. Um, and, you know, once in a blue moon, I drop a note to uh, Smither up north and so on. And uh, a lot of people have died off. <laughs> So have you been involved with the NZSA branches at all, meetings or activities or anything like that? None, none that stick with me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I just pay the subscription, that's all, because I think it's important that to be such a group. You know, um, it's hard to do much. I, I mean, what do we have in Dunedin? We... Well, look, I can't recall. Mm. No. Yeah. Um, so why do you think it's important to, to have that advocacy in that group um, for writers? Well, um, lending right. Um, it's possible to encourage and support with book selling and booksellers. Um, you still have to remind librarians and library staff that um, I would like to see that they actually bought as wide a range of New Zealand books as they could afford but they ought to give New Zealand writing um, you know, considerable priority I don't know what it's like now because at my stage you know, uh, there's nothing I could do about it. And I think the book trade is struggling. I listened to a review on the radio 
Saturday morning, about two Saturday mornings, I'm going to buy the big old allures of. Um, I heard a woman, I, I heard she did a review of or a discussion of this book, Eels. And it was, it sounded like a youngish woman, I can't be sure, recommended it highly and thought it was fantastic. I think it was a young woman. So I, I jumped out of bed. I was still in bed by nine o'clock, and got straight on the phone to UBS in Dunedin and said, listen, I've just heard a minute ago <laughs> this woman enthusing over a book on the yields. If you, I, I want a copy. Have you got one? And they said, yes, we have. I said, I want it. They said, righty, I will send it. Three days later, it arrived. The Gospel of the Eels. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> Patrick. They're the most amazing creature on the planet. I can't explain why. I'm not even going to try at this point. But I did start to read it a couple of nights ago. They're remarkable, aren't they? They're travelling. Oh, but in their gender, it's hard to... I mean, they're even talking about how they actually drop a few years off and then go back and start over again in size and shape and... In, in habitat, the whole bloody works, mm. and how they interrelate and don't, and so on, and the, they just sort of bury themselves in the earth for a couple of years or something. You think, what? Just bullshit. <laughs> but, no, but then you think to yourself, you know, human beings think they're smart ass and clever and have experience. Come read about an eel. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> you've been quite influenced by nature writing, haven't you? Your yeah. Well, what's now called nature writing. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. Americans, Edward Hoagland. If you look around my... And Wendell Berry and Aldo Leopold and so on. Mm. All, all good conservation. When did you first encounter their writings? Oh, decades ago. Because of all the environmental battles and stuff. And uh, I suppose initially, really, almost with when I first met Peter Hooper and expressed an interest in it and found someone who had an even greater interest in it. And where he lived on the West Coast, of course, they were very active in that regard. And he also knew and experienced, as we all do in this area, um, that you were seen to be the enemy by, um, by a lot of business interests. And, you know, there was at Greymouth, I think it was at Greymouth High that Peter was at, you know, parents complained about him so, and his views and they didn't like uh, what impact that would have upon their pupils and so, so But Peter was, you know, pretty indomitable in that regard, but nothing aggressive about him. And there was just a small group in, on the west coast who were fighting to protect it. And, the, and I think the same, it's still the same actually, all over, small groups in the moment. I mean, we're in our Central Otago Environmental Society, you know, we're under assault from uh, quite a lot of people who are looking at their, you know, getting in the road of. Mm. What was your first environmental fight in, in that way? Probably, 
any well the one I can remember most was the aluminium smelter just a few hundred meters or a meter would have been yards across the entrance of Otago Harbour from the Albatross colony and also of course the um, harbour flats and so on in those days there were lots of mullet and flatfish and everything else coming up and down and all that and so and you know prevailing wind a lot of the time would be sending stuff up there and up the harbour and into Ch Port Chalmers and further on and so on and so on I mean that that was one that was a major one for us I was wondering about encouragement from your peers you've, you've talked about how you had a um, some good fellowships with other writers and what was that relationship like um, in terms of give and take and feedback from your work and, and that collegiality we didn't exchange stuff we just talked about what we liked and what we didn't like you know I thought and I suppose the others if you've got second thoughts about what you put down then you're probably right what can how can you do something about it um, we exchanged books a wee bit um, but just chatted there wasn't yeah, there were far fewer of us as I said earlier on and um, and by the time I came back south and the rest of it and working and publishing I, I had a bit more confidence in what I was doing and, and I won a few, an award or two as well for what I'd done and that gave me some credibility both personally and with others I was wondering how you found making a living from writing um, is there a time when you felt you were were able to rely on it exclusively no I don't think I ever could rely upon it exclusively but I was aware that <clears throat> I think far more than well, far more more than any of the other writers I knew I had made a lot of money out of writing and they didn't I attributed that to the good fortune of the sporting side of the family and the cousins and my interest and knowledge of it and my and my brother's abilities at it so I think that gave one the credentials to enable a publisher to persuade um, the sports person or whatever to let me have a go at it and I knew them and some of them a bit and, you know, so that was very helpful to me that others just didn't do it You've been listening to a discussion in 2020 between Brian Turner and Naomi Arnold. To make sure you catch the next episode and to hear past episodes with a range of New Zealand writers, subscribe to the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast on Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season and also UNESCO and the Otago Community Trust for the funding to record new oral histories with authors based in Otago. 
Notturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.